The scripture reading for this morning is from Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 7. Please stand for the reading of God's word. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Why don't we start off with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. And Lord, we thank you for uh, what it invites us into as a community, as your people, as your family here on earth in this place. We pray, O God, that by your spirit, you would help us take to heart all that is here for us and all that is found in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are uh, in the middle of a series. This is week two of three in a series titled Touchstones of Gospel Culture. Gospel culture, remember, is the shared experience of God's grace for undeserving sinners. Gospel culture is formed in a church as gospel doctrine. The message of God's grace for undeserving sinners is taken to heart. And a book that I, that I want to commend to you is this little book titled The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ. Uh, I thought there was a copy out in the lobby. There's not, but see me or go ahead and grab this after the service is over. You can flip through it and take a quick look. Uh, that book has been really formative for this whole series on gospel culture. So I want to, again, encourage you to pick it up. Last week, we looked at the first touchstone, wholehearted love for Jesus. That's the first and most important touchstone of a gospel culture. Again, remember, a touchstone is simply an indicator, something you're looking for to see that what you are, are wanting to see is actually there. It's an indicator of gospel culture. And so the first touchstone is wholehearted love for Jesus. What will characterize a church culture where people are growing in wholehearted love for Jesus? Well, one of the things we looked at last week was simply that we'll be a people who are committed to repentance as a way of life. A cross chart that we looked at that you had in your bulletin last week was a reminder to us of how the gospel frees us from this pattern of pretending and performing, thinking that we have to perform for God in order to, to be accepted by him or, or pretending before other people, acting as if we're more holy or further along than we actually are. The gospel breaks that cycle. The cross of Jesus Christ bridges the gap between the height of God's holiness that's beyond our imagining and the depth of our own sinfulness that is likewise beyond our imagining. We believe our doing for Jesus flows from our being with him. Jesus calls us to obey him. But as we saw last week in John chapter 15, we obey as we abide. All of our doing for Jesus flows out of our being with him. And we also believe that greater love for Jesus leads to greater joy in Jesus. And we want what Jesus wants for his people. Jesus said, I told you these things. This was the uh, end of our passage last week in John 15, 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. And we're a people who want that. We want that for ourselves. We want that for one another. And we recognize that that is intimately linked to love from and for Jesus. So in short, a gospel culture and the, and the kind of church that we long to be, we fall so far short of it. But our desire individually 
and as a church, is to be a people who live for Jesus with all our heart in all of life because Jesus gave his life with all his heart for us. Now, last week I said that I would um, touch a little bit more this week on joy. Uh, The thing I said last week is that lack of joy is like the check engine light in your car. Whenever it's flashing, there's something wrong. But let let me just quickly answer two questions. First, what is joy? And second, can joy be experienced independent of our circumstances? So the first question, what is joy? Here's a good way to define joy. Joy is a deep delight in Jesus that is itself a gift of his grace. Joy is a deep delight in Jesus that is itself a gift of his grace. Jesus said to his disciples, remember, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Can joy be experienced independent of our circumstances? I'm going to let the prophet Habakkuk answer that question for us. Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk would say, yes, joy can be experienced independent of circumstances because joy is not located in your circumstances. Habakkuk lamented his circumstances, but he found joy in the Lord. At the same time, the key to finding joy in the Lord is remembering who he is. As Habakkuk said, the God of your salvation. And that tool that we looked at, again, I hope you held on to it, the cross chart, is just simply a visual aid to draw our hearts and our minds back to Scripture. That's why there's so many verses there on that handout. To draw our hearts and our minds back to Scripture to be reminded about what God has said concerning who we are in Jesus. The more you rest in the love of Jesus for you, the more you will love him. The more you love him, the more you will live for him. The more you live for him, even when you're living for him, hear me now, even when you're living for him is simply trusting him. Though everything else in your world is falling apart, Even when you're living for him is just that, the more of his joy you'll have in your life. Now, more can be said about this, but let me end this segment on joy by saying this, because it provides a great segue into where we're headed, and that's this. We are not a people who fake joy. It's not who we are. We don't don't show up to church on Sunday morning thinking, boy, I better look joyful, because, you know, Mark's talking a lot about joy. So we got to be a people who look really joyful. And if I don't look joyful, then people might, you know, think less of me. And that is not who we are. Trust me, if you had seen me yesterday morning, I'm not, it's sad. I'm not at all joking. If you had seen me yesterday morning, if you had spent the morning with me yesterday, you might be tempted to think less of me because of my profound lack of joy. But that's not the kind of people 
we want to be. We don't want to be the kind of people who think we have to fake joy, and we certainly don't want to be the kind of people who look down on others when they lack joy. The Bible invites us to be, and we desperately need one another to be, the kind of people who point each other to the one in whom fullness of joy is found. So last week, wholehearted love for Jesus. This week, second touchstone, open-hearted love for one another. Open-hearted love for one another. The Bible puts great emphasis on the quality of our life together as a testimony to the reality of God's grace in and among us. Jesus commanded us to love one another just as he loved us. That's John chapter 13, verse 34. Jesus prayed that we would be one as he and the Father are one, that the world might believe that he was sent by the Father. That's John 17, 21. And the same John, the, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John in his first letter, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, said this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And that right there is why Jesus had to command us to love one another and why he had to pray that we would love one another. Because we can have the right doctrine. We can know the truth. John's burden in 1 John is that people realize that there's a world of difference between knowing things about God and knowing God, and the evidence is seen in the way that we treat one another. Or to put it another way, a church can unsay by its culture what it says by its doctrine. Francis Schaeffer in uh, 1974 gave a presentation, gave a talk at the International Congress on World Evangelism, 1974. That talk became a little book titled Two Contents, Two Realities. And I want to read you something that he said in there. He said this, if we do not show beauty, he used the word beauty very deliberately, if we do not show beauty in the way we treat each other, that in the eyes of the world and in the eyes of our own children, we are destroying the truth that we proclaim. And I, I experienced something of that. In 1984, I was in ninth grade. I grew up in a, in a Baptist church. And in, in ninth grade, I saw how much those people in those church hated one another. Hate might be too strong a word, but there was no love for one another in that church. That if I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say the people who liked the pastor sat on one side and the people who didn't like him sat on the other, and they did not talk to one another. And it was palpable. As a ninth grader, I picked up on it. And I turned away. I still had to go to church because I was in ninth grade. But in my heart, I turned away. And it wasn't because of anything to do with that worship service. There was nothing spectacular about that worship service. There was nothing about the singing, nothing about the, the instruments, nothing about the preaching that was, that was either remarkably good or remarkably bad. It wasn't that. It was the way the people treated one another that caused me to say, if this is what Christianity is about, it's not for me. 
When it comes to gospel culture, wherever there are people who are committed to and growing in wholehearted love for Jesus, there will be a corresponding open-hearted love for one another. Can I say that again? The two things go together. Wherever there are people who are committed to and growing in, because as I talk about this gospel culture, please don't ever hear me say, Grace Church has arrived. We have not. But when it comes to gospel culture, wherever there are people who are committed to and growing in wholehearted love for Jesus, there will be a corresponding open-hearted love for one another. And Paul tells us as much in this passage that we're looking at this morning. We're going to look at it briefly under the following four headings. First, the scope of the welcome. Second, the purpose of the welcome. Third, the power for the welcome. And then fourth, the kind of culture such a welcome creates. So first, the scope of the welcome. Take a look at verse 7 again with me. Paul writes there, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Now, that therefore reaches back into something that precedes it, but it also provides a bridge into where he's he's heading. So, verse 7 reaches back and it reaches forward. It kind of governs things that he has previously said and what he's about to say. So, looking back, it goes back to chapter 14, verse 1, and everything that follows, in which Paul is addressing disunity in the church in Rome over the issue of food that had been sacrificed to idols. In that city, in the culture, you know, there would be pagan worship that would involve meat sacrifices, and then that meat would often be sold in the, in the public markets. And so there were some Christians who said we shouldn't be eating that, that meat. Whenever you go to the market, you shouldn't be buying any of the meat that was previously sacrificed and is now is being sold for food. That would be, in some way, they thought, to participate in the very false worship that led to that animal being sacrificed in the first place. There were others who said, no, 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 it's, it's, that's not a problem at all. That's, that's not actually engaging in false worship. It's just buying meat to eat. They were the strong. Those who were strong in their faith understood that that was not an issue, that their consciences shouldn't be burdened, that it was not a sin to buy meat that had been previously sacrificed to an idol in pagan worship. The weak that Paul's referring to in Romans 14 and 15 are those who were tripped up over that, who did think it was sin, whose consciences were burdened. And what Paul is saying throughout 14, chapter 1 through uh, 15, 7, where we are right now, is that those who are strong have an obligation, a duty to bear with those who are weak and not to cause them to trip up in their faith. And so that leads all the way up into chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And then from there, he moves on. He starts talking about how God is the God of both Jew and Gentile. So Jesus came in order to rescue the circumcised. He's referring to Jewish people, but also for the sake of being able to rescue the uncircumcised Gentile people. Therefore, welcome one another includes welcoming Jew and Gentile. Now, what, what are the implications of this? Why, why does that matter? The, the point is this. This was a very diverse church. It was an extremely diverse church. There was a diversity when it came to spiritual maturity. Right? There were those who had a, a really impoverished view of what Scripture said on a secondary issue and those who had, a, had maturity about that. 
There is diversity in terms of ethnicity, Jew and Gentile, right? Huge dividing line culturally that was abolished in Jesus. What we know from other letters was that there was a huge amount of diversity socioeconomically. And they were struggling to live out the reality of what it meant to be one people in Christ gathered together. And so Paul joins Jesus and Peter and John and the author of Hebrews, the consistent testimony of the New Testament in saying, you must be one. You must be unified. You must be seeking the good of the other person over your own. You must love one another as Christ loved you. So there's the, the scope of the welcome in the horizontal sense, but there's also a depth. He says, welcome one another as Christ welcomed you. How did Jesus welcome you? Sacrificially, right? Jesus said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That's Mark chapter 10. Intimately, Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. Steadfastly, Revelation chapter 3, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. We often think of that in an evangelistic sense. Jesus is knocking on the door of the heart of the unbeliever and, and inviting, you know, an opportunity for a relationship with him. The context of Revelation 3, it's, this is to the church. This is to Christians. Jesus is saying of Christians, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking on your heart. If you will let me in, I will come in and have fellowship with you. We'll eat together. There's a steadfast, continuing love to his people that's demonstrated right there in Revelation chapter 3. Not in, not in spite of our sins, certainly not because of any goodness in us, and not in spite of our sins, but precisely because we need him. Precisely because of our need, Jesus comes to us. And we're called to love one another in the same way. That's the scope of the welcome. Breadth, depth. But then secondly, what about the purpose of the welcome? Look back with me at verse 5. Paul writes this, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see here is that the purpose of the welcome is worship. It's worship. We are not called to embody these kinds of horizontal relationships only for the sake of our testimony in the world, as true and vital as that is. Ultimately, we are called to be unified in such a way, in accord with Christ Jesus, meaning following his pattern, his example, so that we would glorify God in our worship. What kind of worship glorifies God? It doesn't have first and foremost to do with the kind of songs that we sing. It has first and foremost to do with our unity as a people. In Christ. Worshiping Him. So worship is the purpose. But secondly, testimony. I think in verse 7, Paul is pointing to, again, that, that horizontal reality of what our unity testifies to 
concerning who Jesus is. And so in verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In other words, the way in which you relate to one another glorifies God. It's, it's your worship together. God's looking for a people who are unified in heart, in accord with Christ Jesus, offering him worship. When that happens, he's glorified. And also our testimony to the world, which is exactly how Jesus prayed for us. That we would welcome one another as Christ welcomed us. The glory of God. Please, please appreciate this with me. The glory of God is most clearly seen in the world today in the church. It's when non-Christians are among us and they see a people who are unified in Christ, worshiping him with one voice, and then after the service and as they get an opportunity maybe to walk alongside us in normal everyday life, they see people who actually practice what they preach, who really do love one another, not in a superficial way, but in a way that gives evidence that they push through hard things to get to a depth of love for one another that is uncommon in this world. As that happens, the glory of God is seen because only God can accomplish that kind of thing in the hearts of fallen people. So that turns to the third point then, the power for the welcome. Where does this power, this ability to, to um, inhabit that kind of unity come from? It comes from the Lord. Take a look back with me at verse 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Whenever you see in the, in the Bible that, that God of encouragement or God of um, uh, endurance or, or down in verse 13, may the God of hope or in 2 Corinthians 1, may the father of all comfort. What that's saying is God is the ultimate source of those things. Where does endurance come from? It comes from the God of endurance. The eternal one who's unfailing and unchanging is the one in whom you will find the endurance that you need to endure, whatever it is. So, same with encouragement, same with hope, same with comfort. God is the God of these things. He is the source of these things. So where does the endurance and the encouragement come from to live with this kind of unity, offering this kind of welcome? It comes from God. God working through his spirit. You don't have this, um, we didn't read this uh, this morning, but let me just jump down to verse 13 of chapter 15. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So God is the source of all hope. All hope is found in him. All endurance, all encouragement is found in him. And he enables us to live in and, and appropriate that encouragement, endurance, or hope through the power of the Holy Spirit working through his word. So again, I didn't read verse 4. We could have read all of chapter 15. But back in verse 4, let me read this to you. Verse 4, Paul said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He's referring to the Old Testament. Was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might find hope. So you see how these come together. From God, through his word, by the power of his spirit, we have the endurance and the encouragement that we need in order to inhabit this kind of welcoming, open-heartedness toward one another. That's incredible. 
we know, just living in relationship with one another, that if we don't have the power of God to truly welcome one another into our hearts as Christ has welcomed us, we'll be lost. If we take seriously what Scripture is commanding us to do, Paul is not giving a suggestion. It's a command, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. If we take that seriously and then we look at within ourselves and we know ourselves and we think about other, how other people perhaps have hurt us in the past, we know we need the power of God in order to obey this command. And what Paul is saying is you've got it. God, through his word, by the power of your, his spirit, gives you what you need. God supplies what he commands always always the power for the welcome comes from god so the scope of the welcome is diverse and deep the purpose of the welcome is the glory of god the power for the welcome comes from god let's turn finally then to the kind of culture that that kind of welcoming creates it first creates a people without pretense telling stories of grace a people without pretense telling stories of grace. We know and we need to be reminded that we exist only because of God's grace. Individually, as a church, we know and we need to be reminded because we forget that we exist only because of God's grace. We have zero reason to look down on other people in their sin because we're no longer surprised by our own sin. And we continue to marvel at the love of God by which sinners are reconciled and restored. We have an identity that's received and not achieved. So we're free to be real. That is so important in our day and age. Everyone is polished and platformed and performing in order to achieve an identity. And they are exhausted. They're exhausted. There's unimaginable pressure put on you if who you are is fundamentally defined by what you are able to achieve for an identity, especially in an age of social media. But Christians have an identity that's received, not achieved. We're more loved and accepted in Jesus than we could possibly imagine. The, if you're a Christian, God the Father loves you just as much as he loves his own son. We don't have to pretend or perform. We're free to be real. And the third, we're redemptively vulnerable with our stories of grace. And I don't, by stories of grace, I don't just mean our testimony concerning how we became a Christian. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 1, where, where Paul tells us there, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, the God of mercy and the Father of comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we can comfort those in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about a story of grace. It's being able to say, here's an area where I was afflicted, where I struggled, where I, where I suffered, where I doubted, whatever, where I strayed, and I turned to the God of all comfort, and he comforted me, he restored me, he forgave me, he healed me, and now I'm looking for an opportunity because of God's call to comfort others with the comfort that I have received from him in the midst of their affliction. I use the 
the, those two words, that phrase, redemptively vulnerable. Vulnerable because comforting others with the comfort that you have received at their point of need requires a level of vulnerability. Now, that needs to be appropriate to the context. You can be vulnerable at one level with a person one-on-one in a way that you can't be in a setting like this or in a growth group or in, in, in other settings, perhaps. And that phrase, that, that word, that qualifier, redemptively. Ultimately, you're sharing the comfort that you yourself have received from God for their comfort, that they might look to him and find in him the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. You see? We're redemptively vulnerable with our stories of grace. So a church that's a culture that's inhabiting, exhibiting this kind of welcome is first and foremost a people without pretense telling stories of grace. But then secondly, that kind of church, that kind of culture is a place where strugglers are at home. A place where strugglers are at home. And that kind of place, the vulnerable are safe. We've got a training coming up this Saturday, uh, Safe Place Training. There's information on your, in your bulletin. I'll talk more about it during announcements. But here's, here's the impetus for why that kind of training is necessary. Over half of women and almost one in three men have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact during their lifetimes. About one in three women and one in four men report having experienced severe physical violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. About one in four girls and one in 13 boys in the United States experience child sexual abuse. At least one in seven children have experienced child abuse or neglect in the past year in the United States. That means that in this church, there are people... And there will be people who have been affected by these kinds of horrific tragedies. Will they and other vulnerable people find themselves at home here at Grace Church? In a gospel culture, all who are hurting are safe, and they find the hope and the healing that Christ provides. The vulnerable are safe. The marginalized are seen. Paul Miller, in his book, Love Walked Among Us, marvels in that book at how many times in the Gospels we read about Jesus looking at people, just seeing people. Over 40 times in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus saw someone, especially the kind of people that everyone else in the culture tended to overlook. Throughout Jesus's ministry, seeing leads to loving. Seeing leads to loving. Jesus never looked past people. He never saw them as a means to an end. He never saw uh, a relationship as contractual or transactional in any way. He was never too busy for people. He always looked into their hearts and saw that what they needed more than anything was him. And the church, not just this church, any church, must be a place where all are seen and all are loved. In that kind of culture, a gospel culture, the lonely find a family. The former uh, Surgeon General said some time ago, uh, he spoke of a loneliness epidemic. He said that he saw more people in his practice dealing with chronic loneliness than he did heart disease or any other malady. At the heart of that loneliness is the feeling that no one knows you, and if they did, they wouldn't accept you. Right? If you've ever been lonely, 
you know what I'm talking about. But what if there was a place where you could be known and accepted? Where you could be known and loved? That's the kind of place you couldn't wait to get to every week. And that's what the church is called to be for the lonely. Psalm 68, verse 6. God sets the lonely in families. We're to be that kind of family. The vulnerable are safe, the marginalized are seen, the lonely find a family, and sinners can come clean. In a gospel culture, sinners can come clean. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together touches on this so well. Let me just read this quote. When you confess your sin to another Christian, the expressed acknowledged sin has lost all its power. Now he stands in the fellowship of sinners who live by the grace of God in the cross of Jesus Christ. The sin concealed separated him from the fellowship. The sin confessed has helped him to find true fellowship with the brethren in Jesus Christ. And I'll, I'll touch on this just real quick. In this book, Ray Ortland talks about the need for a church to be a place that's marked by a certain equation. That equation is gospel plus safety plus time. Gospel plus safety plus time. Here's why that's important. Unlike previous generations where the the issue for people coming into Christianity, coming into the church, was recognizing that the felt need that they had, that there's a God who exists and they're guilty before him and in Christ they are forgiven, was simply something that had more to do with a an apprehension of of thinking that then worked its way out into their life. I used to think this way about God, now I can think this way about God. But there's that, um, there were dots that could be connected in people's thinking when it came to what it meant to have a relationship with God. That's no longer the case. Not only do we, are are we in a culture where increasingly you're going to meet people who have never been into church and not only know nothing about the Bible, but all they've been told is, is very negative and untrue things about Christianity. Although some of those things are sadly true because we're sinful Christians and we don't give honor to God the way that we should. So, so you've got that hurdle and you've also got the fact that we're living in a culture in which people are being told things about their fundamental identity, about who they are, that are so far afoul of what it means to be created in God's image. Okay, so as, as people increasingly, we pray, come out of that context in, in which there's a house with no furniture in it, if you will, in terms of their thinking about God, or, or a blank page with no dots to connect, we have to, uh, we have to be a place where gospel plus safety plus time is happening. People will take longer to follow the way of Jesus than they previously did, simply because there's so much that will need to be undone. Can we be the kind of people that are patient, not just with one another, but with those who are coming from such a different place than so many of us came from? So what kind of culture does this kind of welcome create? It creates first and foremost a people that are without pretense telling stories of grace, a place where strugglers are at home, and then finally, and here's where we'll wrap up, a people whose genuine love for one another proves Jesus is real. A people whose genuine love for one another proves Jesus is real. That's how Jesus was praying for us. 
Another quote from the book, The Gospel Ray Ortland, both the truth of biblical doctrine and the beauty of human relationships are equally essential if people are going to say, here is the answer I've been looking for all my life. Do we believe that? Both the truth of the gospel and, echoing Schaefer, the beauty of human relationships within the church are essential if people are going to say, here's the answer I've been looking for all my life. That's why Jesus prayed for our unity, that the world would know that he was sent by God. Where are all of our hopes and dreams addressed and found? Where's all of our longings ultimately met? In Jesus. And the quality of our life together either undermines the testimony concerning who he really is or contributes to it. It is impossible for us to fathom the perfect intimacy of relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Speaking entirely metaphorically, we can say that no two persons had welcomed one another into the very center of their hearts as fully as those two persons did. And yet on the cross, in his hour of greatest need, when he cried out from his heart to his Father, the heart of his father was closed to him. Why? In order to welcome you in. And as you see and continue to remember the wondrous love that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for your soul, you will become a person and we will become a church that welcomes one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, the, the vision that you lay before us of what this church and any church can be is stunning. Lord, forgive us for our very, very small dreams of what it means to be your people gathered together in this place at this time would you enlarge our hearts and enlarge our ability to welcome one another into our hearts that the fullness of the reality of what you desire for us in our life together would be on display and enjoyed by all. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.